Hannah had that simple faith to put her question before the Lord, to trust when the high priest asked that it be granted, she began to live in that moment in agreement with what God was about to do a long time, at least months before it had ever really come to pass. Eli, the high priest, kind of unwittingly, unknowingly asked God to uh, provide that goodness and that blessing to her. And she walks away. Her actions and her behavior came into agreement with the promise, even though that there was no sign of a child. She certainly wasn't pregnant. But she began to eat. She began to praise God. She began to act already as if the child had already been born. How significant that is for you and I to come into agreement with the mind of Christ even when there's no evidence around us that the promise is going to be fulfilled yet. That's faith in a simple definition. There's still much that we're learning and, and much that we're, we're gaining understanding. But I wish that we could understand and live by that simple faith. We have such a hard time within our Christian lives of believing what God says. I asked someone earlier today, if God were to begin to speak all manners of goodness and kindness over you and tell you the truth about you, how hard a time would you have believing it? And that person said it would almost be impossible. It's amazing, but I know it's true that we have such a hard time believing. When God speaks over us truth, we have such a hard time believing it, and especially to the point where we start acting in agreement with it long before it ever happens. But that's exactly what she did, and it was truly remarkable. We come to chapter 2, realizing that at the end of chapter 1, it says that they began to worship. They began to acknowledge what was about to happen. Beginning with verse 1, recognizing that this is Hannah's song of thanksgiving. It's a song of praise that she begins to sing. This is where her faith and the reality of God's promise comes together, and out of that swells this emotional response that came out as music. It came out as poetry. And it came out as praise. It was where her cry before the Lord met his provision. And out of that very natural response came this beautiful poem. So it was a song that Hannah prayed. And I can tell you that because of how often it's repeated in the New Testament, we hear pieces of this in Mary's song of praise as she realizes that she's going to have a child and who that child is, when she sings, you know, my soul doth magnify the Lord. She's singing a song, but you can tell that she has full awareness of this song that Hannah has written. So let's begin with verse 1. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. So she begins this song of thanksgiving and praise, and she prayed and she said, my heart rejoices in the Lord. So the worship of the Lord was the natural response of those things that had just happened. The most telling piece of information that I can give you about her singing this song that we should know up front, as she begins to say, my heart rejoices in the Lord. What else was happening on that day when she sang this song? This was the day she brought Samuel to leave him with the high priest. Can you imagine? She was singing and saying, my heart rejoices in the Lord all the time. Her heart had to be breaking because of the circumstances she was facing. Samuel would never live in her home again. Samuel was being handed over to, to a high priest whose reputation was not good. 
she would have every reason, every cause to say, I'm not going to do it. It's too hard. It's too much. Not only am I being asked to leave him, but I'm, I'm leaving him with someone that I don't truly trust. But out of that circumstance and out of that challenge, she sings this beautiful song, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. Now that phrase, my horn is exalted in the Lord, is a little bit unusual because many teach that the horn is a symbol of strength. And it certainly is within the Old Testament. Very symbolic of the strength of, of the Lord. But there was also a practice within that culture that the Jews had accepted as well. That on the forehead, these women would wear this kind of a little pyramid-shaped horn. If they were single, if they had not yet had a child, that would be worn lower on the forehead. And you could tell by the scarf that was covering their face that the point of that would be carried a little bit lower. But when they had a child, it would be raised and, you, and there would be an outward sign that this was a mother because the peak of the scarf would be much higher. This woman had had a child. So when she says, my horn is exalted in the Lord, she was not maybe not only talking about the strength. My picture is that the experience of that culture was that that horn was now raised and there was an outward evidence that God had just blessed her. She was carrying that outward sign, that outward evidence that God's blessing had come to her. Because I, I want to tell you, she would have been a woman who was extremely proud of the, of the fact that God's blessing had been shown to her. And she had pressed into the heart of God and she had come before him with tears and with, and with sadness asking for this gift that he, that he and only he could give her. So her heart rejoiced and she demonstrates her true celebration in the Lord and her love for him while making the greatest sacrifice of her life. Again, it's very difficult for us to imagine her being able to rejoice through the sadness of leaving her son. And for us to believe that it wasn't heartbreaking would be a little bit ridiculous. For us to somehow think that because of God's presence, because of God's goodness, because of the fact that God gave her this gift, that when she had to leave him, that her heart wasn't broken. So I want to tell you that one of the things that we, we learn very quickly as Christians, we should learn, hopefully we do learn, that our rejoicing in the Lord is often done in the saddest moments of our life. And don't ever believe that they won't coexist because they can, they do. That we say goodbye we say, we'll leave you with the Lord. We'll follow that which God has given us. Everything in her humanly, emotionally, mentally was, I believe, in turmoil. But this is that moment when her spirit, in relationship to the Spirit of God, was greater than the turmoil that she was facing everywhere else. I don't want to minimize what she was facing. Come to grips with the fact that this was being spoken because her love for the Lord is greater. Her desire to be obedient was, was tremendous, even though her heart was breaking. And it says that the horn was raised and elevated because of who she was. She says, I smile at my enemies. Hannah has now been vindicated and Penina no longer has the upper hand. But this is a very mild response of Hannah to this fellow wife of her husband. It's quite a mild response to consider when you consider the bitterness of what Penina had been telling her. How could she smile at her enemies? 
what has to be going on in her head and in ours for us to be able to smile at our enemies. What do our enemies normally have the power to do in us and through us? Most of the time they create turmoil. Most of the time they create anguish. What can remove that anguish and that turmoil that we feel about our enemies and that can actually turn it into a smile? We create a triangle between us and our enemy and in that third point of the triangle is the presence of God. He will, by his nature, change the picture. He will, by his nature, change our countenance so that we will accurately see the enemy and instead of the fury that it would normally bring, it brings the smile. If if I'm going to stand here and look at my enemy and, and as the third point I'm going to look at God, where would my mind and my heart and my eyes be naturally drawn? If I've got a choice between my enemy and God, where would my eyes be focused? Boy, I hope it would be focused on God. And all of a sudden, our enemy becomes the proper size, instead of enormous, that our mind and our emotions would make it. The reason we can smile is because Hannah could, for the first time, in the blessing of God, in the provision of God, she could truly see Penina for the size that she truly was. As much turmoil as she created in, in Hannah, under this provision... Hannah could for the first time see how small Penina was. And she could smile at at her enemy. There's none holy like the Lord. This is the poetic use of what was very common within the Hebrew language. And she said this in in ways that would make it repeat and, and, and be established that there is no one like God. There's no one like God. There's no one like God. There's no one holy like God. And she emphasized it over and over. We continue to read and it says, Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. This is a warning from her to the arrogant and to the proud. Talk no more so very proudly. Where does most evidence of pride leave out of someone's person? Out of the mouth. And here Hannah is giving this warning to anyone who is proud. I know that, uh, I think this is probably specifically aimed at Penina, but I also know that Penina represents the reality of pride and arrogance throughout the world and especially within the church. It most often comes from our mouth. We need quickly as believers to learn what it means to wear that bridle, to wear that bit that controls our mouth and controls how we speak because we reveal ourselves by the words that we speak. And again, I know that some piece of this is directed at Penina, but I know that she represents the reality of the same pride and arrogance that we have within ourselves and within the body of Christ. For the Lord is the God of knowledge. This is probably the best reason, the best way to overcome our pride. Because what does God know that we might be able to hide from everyone else? He knows exactly who we are. He knows exactly what thought I just had in my head. He knows exactly what I have just done. He is the God of knowledge, and there's not anything going to be hidden from him. And then this last statement, this is a weighty one. And by him, actions are weighed. What does that mean? By him, actions are weighed. Yeah. I mean, they're judged. Exactly right. We may not fully comprehend this, and we may not actually put a salve over this and call it grace, But the reality is, he knows us, and by him, our actions are weighed. 
I just want that to settle over you for just a minute and understand the significance of what that means because we do so easily cover everything with grace and appropriately so. But don't ever believe that God doesn't recognize and doesn't wait, not only for those things that he recognizes within us that look exactly like him. We don't sin. We don't rebel. We don't refuse. We don't reject without God's notice. We've almost made it where he pays no attention. Extremely unfair. He pays attention. He knows exactly those moments in our life. In verse 4, Hannah gives glory to God who often humiliates the strong and exalts the weak. And this is a section of this that I struggle with a little. He says, the bows of the mighty men are broken, and those who stumbled are girded with strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, and the hungry have ceased to hunger. Even the barren has borne seven, and she has many children, and she who has many children has become feeble. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. I understand exactly what she has written. I don't question what she has written. I'm not confused by the comparisons that she's making about what happens and what happens in response with God. But I have a little bit different perspective, and I don't ask you to share it. I'm going to share it because this is how God has shown me. But again, you, you take this the way that you want to because there's an element of this as she speaks. To re- I'm going to read kind of every other line. The bows of the mighty men are broken. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. She goes on and says, She who has many children has become feeble. The Lord kills. The Lord brings down. The Lord makes poor. He brings low. If I just read that half of this, what does the nature of God appear? Harsh? Mean? Vindictive? Revengeful? Cruel? There's a lot of things that we could assign into this story. And I honestly struggle with that perception. It creates for me a tension between truths that I can't quite resolve. Here's how I do resolve. There is a natural enemy not only present in our New Testament truth that we spoke of this morning, the reality of Satan was also present in the Old Testament because he shows up so early in the story in Genesis. And the thing that I picture is not God, as I hold my hand out here, as if I'm standing in it. I don't see God taking his other hand and slapping me. What I can picture, though, is me standing here in the palm of my hand and the palm of my other hand covering me providing by the grace of God, the protection of God, the provision of God that covers me, and because of my choice, I remove myself, I remove that covering, so now that I stand fully exposed to those things around me that can harm me, that can kill me, that can destroy me, that can bring me low. So it's the difference to me of God not slapping us and punishing us the way that this reads, Versus the fact that if he removes his presence from me because of my choice, then the natural things of this world, the natural consequences, will do exactly what this scripture is describing. Is that comparison evident? I mean, can you at least see what I'm trying to describe? I just have a difficult time because we're talking about here 
as far as I could tell, two women, especially if he's speaking of Panana, that she's describing something that's coming out of her relationship with Panana that becomes so severe. Now, I do recognize that what she's saying is that God has the power and the willingness to take those who are brokenhearted and raise them, to heal them, to restore them. If I were to read the other half of this, the other lines I didn't read, then God becomes kind and he becomes good and he becomes gracious. And I do believe that there are these two pieces of God. I do believe that he is that. I do believe, though, that he also removes his presence and the natural consequences of a world under the influence of Satan will produce what this is describing. I don't ask you to agree with that. You can believe, if you'd like, that God actually slaps, that God actually kills, that God actually takes people down, that, he gets, that he's vengeful, that he does that. I have a hard time understanding that. When I even look at the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, my, the image has always been of God removing his hand of protection so that the natural consequences of what the world offers becomes the reality instead of his provision. That's how I see it. Hannah knew all of this intimately in her life, and she was barren because it even says that the Lord had closed her womb in 1 Samuel 1.6. She knew the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he lifts up. And God had first set her low, and then he brought her high. She could see the hand of the Lord in it all. And then verses 8 through 10. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he has set the world upon them. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness. For by strength no man shall prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. The only thing I would add to this is that this is the first time under that word anointed that the Bible speaks of the Messiah. The anointed, this is the first time that it, even though there's no king in Israel and there's never been a king in Israel, it speaks of the king, so she's definitely speaking of something yet to come. And she's saying that the strength of God will inevitably succeed. And there's, again, a remarkable resemblance between the song of Hannah and that of Mary in Luke 1.46. Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, quotes Hannah in Luke 1.69 when he prophetically calls Jesus the horn of salvation. Again, that's a quote from verse 10. Mary sings of it in her song. Verse 11, Samuel ministers unto the Lord. So the father and the mother go home, but the child ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. So they did what they were asked to do. They left their little son behind and they went home. But the child ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. And as young as he was, Samuel could have a ministry to the Lord. It's often in the hearts of children that the real breakthrough comes. You know, for, for Max and Debbie last week to be sharing that it was Avian who on more than one occasion told them that she had seen in a dream that she was going to Africa. She didn't know exactly what she was describing. But you heard Debbie say when we were showing the video last week of the people coming into the new church in Maasailand that uh, Avian told them when she saw that people coming in all these colors she told him, she says, that's them. That's the brown people that I saw in my dream. Recognized very clearly that it was what she had already seen. I want to tell you, how can that happen? Because there's just nothing cluttering her mind. There's nothing that tells her that she can't dream the greatest dreams and imagine the greatest things. 
Here Samuel is. I don't know exactly how old he was. Some of you may have notes in your Bible, but he couldn't have been very old because her promise was that when he was able to take care of himself, when he was old enough, she didn't have to feed him, that she would take him. So he had to be very young. So she and her husband left him, and he ministered. And he was probably the greatest piece of ministry that was happening at that time within the temple. It also says within this passage in another place that every year that she would bring him a new little coat. Why did she have to bring Samuel a new little coat? What's the obvious answer? He was growing. That coat is the outward testimony of what was happening within him. Raymond always speaks of the outer picture of what was happening to him with inside. So it's a great testimony that she was recognizing within, within Samuel that his raiment would change every year because he was growing. And it's quite a strange commentary based on what we were talking about this morning about the knowledge of God. That most of us have grown physically, but we're still wearing the first coat that we were ever put on because we've not grown to the place where our testimony ever bears witness that we have moved beyond that first little coat that we were given because salvation was the end of the story and that we haven't ever learned how to minister and grow and need a new coat from year to year. But she was faithful to bring it because she recognized that her son was growing in the Lord and that every time he grew in the Lord, the outward evidence would change and she was faithful to bring it. Most gracious Heavenly Father, I just thank you, Lord, that from within Hannah's heart within her spirit, this song would come out, a song of thanksgiving and a song of praise, recognizing, God, who you are in relationship to who she was. She understood how much Samuel was a gift to her, but I also know, Lord, that she was able in that day to leave him to minister to Eli, the high priest, and that her heart was broken at the sacrifice that she was committed to make but all the time that it was that same day she was writing and praising you because you were worthy to be exalted. I just pray, Lord, that you would find that same heart within us. We speak it in Jesus' name. Amen.